This is Effed Up, a conversational podcast about injustice, true crime, and rosé. Season one of Effed Up is a story about the corruption in one state's crime lab. Listeners are advised that this podcast contains opinions that are our own. Hi there. Welcome to Effed Up, the podcast. Grab some rosé or your drink of choice, which should be rosé, and enjoy. Without further ado, this is who we are and how we became Effed Up. It's 11 in the morning and we're drinking rosé. So so it's a normal Saturday. (laughs) It's a holiday weekend for us. (laughs) We're starting with wine instead of vodka. (laughs) So I am Priya Hubbard. I'm Jessica Borges. And I'm Keith Burke. Here's the story of how we became effed up. Okay, so we're reality television producers. We make lots of really trashy slash wonderful shows. <laughs> really good shows. So Keith, Jess, and I met on a TV show about three years ago, and we worked in an office that we called the Party Palace. The Party Palace. Party Palace. Because there was lots of terrible things going on, and we closed the door and <laughs> yeah. pretended that everything was great. We were basically immediate BFFs, and we still are, or we pretend to be. <laughs> this is getting awkward. I'm <laughs> Anyway, while we were working together, Jess and I basically decided that we wanted to work together for a long time because we enjoy each other's company. We decided that we wanted to also create our own content rather than working on other people's visions, which is not bad. We enjoy working on other people's visions, but also it would be exciting to work on our own. Yeah. So one weekend, I was watching The Staircase. It had been recommended to me by a number of people who know my taste in true crime. And I basically binged it, I think, in one day. And by the next day, I was Googling everything that had happened in that show because I wanted You'd to know. You'd like solve the case. <laughs> <laughs> we got we, we to play by play. <laughs> <laughs> so in researching it and watching it, I had been really fascinated by this blood analyst with the North Carolina State Bureau of Investigation. His name was Dwayne Deaver. Obviously, Michael Peterson is charged. With yeah. Murder. Oh, yeah, yeah, so yeah, yeah. This is his case. So basically, oh, right. the staircase the whole thing was follows his trial. His trial. Yeah, yeah. 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 So there. So Dwayne Deaver gets on the stand to prove why Michael Peterson did it. Right. So yeah. he is like the analyst that inspected the blood and basically said, you know, based on these patterns of blood against the wall and all over her body, he did it. You know, and had proved it to the yeah. jury. Dwayne Deaver was an expert for the prosecution who worked for the State Bureau of Investigation. The SBI. The SBI. They are very similar to the FBI, but they work on a state level rather than a federal. Is this like CSI? Like that's yes. that's what they are? Like they're basically CS like that show CSI? Yes, totally. Actually, to be more specific. Dwayne Deaver and the other bloodstain pattern analysts worked in the SBI crime lab. And that crime lab is totes the type of thing that CSI was based on. Well, you were intrigued by the way he was presenting the, like, I don't even want to say evidence because it wasn't the evidence. Yes. But what caught Priya's attention was how theatrical and over the top it was. It didn't really quite seem like he was actually trying to prove 
Oh, like it didn't seem like scientifically based. It was more just like, hey, here's a good story. Yeah. When Priya was watching this, her little antenna went up and was kind of like, is this the only time that's happened or has it happened more than once? And like, she just kind of fell into this like crazy research spiral and then came into work and was like, dun, 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 dun. Yeah. Basically, I found out that the lab, like all of the fucked upness was bigger than just Dwayne Deaver and there was something really fucked up going on. Right. It was systemic and not just like this guy. Yeah. Yeah. So came in on Monday morning and was like, I think that I found our show and I told her all about it. And she was like, what the fuck? Yeah. And basically we had our show idea and it was great. So initially we tried to create this vision as a television show and we got really close and then we didn't. Yeah. Like a few times you almost sold it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, creating show ideas and pitching them and developing is, you know, not the easiest thing. But basically, the story of it all is so important to us because so many effed up things happen and so many lives were impacted. So we wanted to get the story out there. So hopefully it never happens again. Well, right. Because the way you guys, from what you've told me about how you wanted to do it was that you had more of like a social justice angle to it and you wanted to actually like present everything and not have not get tainted by opinions or yeah. not like over dramatize for the purposes of like, Hey, this is going to be a good show. Right. It's like, Hey, there's something effed up, fucked up beeped <laughs> with the system that, you know, needs to be rectified. So like the whole idea that you guys had from what you told me was just like shining a light on like, here's the problem. Yeah. Versus like, Oh, look at this fucked up story. And here's this fucked up story. Like there's a point right. that you're telling, which is why we ended up ultimately deciding to do this as a podcast. So we could kind of have, the ability to tell a story and to share it with Keith and all of you. Me. <laughs> yeah. My, my part in all this is I'm the audience. So like they're telling me the story for the first time. So I'm going to ask all the questions that you're probably yelling at your car while you're listening to this. <laughs> and occasionally things that are not quite as intelligent, <laughs> but I can't help it if there's wine in front of me and I say dumb things. <laughs> yeah. Cause the thing is we were all working in the same office together and Keith would overhear snippets of what we were doing and... While I was doing my job. <laughs> yes. While he was actually doing the work that we were all hired <laughs> to do. And Jess and I were working on this. I do have to say that the entire time that Jess and I were have been working on this, we've gone to like 2 o'clock in the morning, have had to work the next day at our right. actual job. Yeah. We get slap happy. And we... <laughs> we do. Yeah. We're off the rails. But we also just always have a good time together and have gallows humor. So right. we 100% would have loved to make a very serious television <laughs> show about this. The podcast is going to be us and our personalities. Sorry, there is a cat being a cat <laughs> right now. And like, <laughs> this podcast is going to have cats. It's going to have cats. It's going to have puns. <laughs> it has rosé. <laughs> For now, we're going to just deal with murder. I shouldn't laugh at that part. No. Okay, okay. I, was, I was just laughing because we're like team tangent. All right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So at the end of the staircase, they do like sort of a little blip on a guy named Greg Taylor. Because he was also influenced by the same analyst through the SBI, Dwayne Deaver also. And so that was kind of like where we realized this is that bigger. Was like, that was like the kernel of the story. Yeah, we they, were like, well, oh. the story like that this is going to be yes. is, is Greg Taylor. It yes. starts with Greg. And honestly, it's sad because 
so many people's lives were negatively impacted by the way that the system is structured Mm -hmm. and it's really fucked up and we want to fix it and people need to know about it. Exactly. And that is why this is the first season of fucked up that we're calling the system is fucked up. Mm -hmm. Well, meaning the justice system, but it's not just the justice system. It is, there are systems, there are systematic issues that are in play that impact human beings in such a fucked up manner. Well, let's just get into the podcast. Let's just do it. Yeah. Let's do it. All right. This story starts actually in 1991, Raleigh, North Carolina. Greg was more or less a typical middle-class suburban. He worked in telecommunications. He and his wife had an eight-year-old daughter, two cats and a dog. They would spend their weekends on a lake. Their family vacations were spent camping. Like, they were just... Like a normal family. Yeah. Yeah. Thing is, Greg did like to party. So, September 25th, 1991, Greg is... Over at a friend's house, he is watching a baseball game. It has gone into. Right? I don't think it was. It was no, a that's October playoff. Playoff. It was playoffs. I mean, when yes. you say party, is he like a drinker or is he like drinks, drinks more, and drugs? More drinks and drugs. Yeah. yeah. So they're watching the game, and it's between innings, and he decides he can go out and get some drugs before the end of the game. So Greg goes out as he's either about to get high or he's just gotten high. He runs into a friend. A drug friend? An acquaintance. Yeah, it's not drug acquaintance. Yeah. Okay. Named Johnny Beck. Okay. Johnny Beck gets in the car. He wants to get high too. At 2 a.m., they all of the drugs were gone. So they decided that they wanted to get more. So this driving around like buying drugs? Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. Wow. And they end up in this sort of like industrial complex in sort of like a cul-de-sac, you know, like it's like buildings. And there's a cul-de-sac, mm-hmm. so they're in that. But there's sort of an off-the-beaten-path section. Yeah, they, like, drive Greg's truck. Yes. Over there. Well, they park initially in the cul-de-sac, yeah. and as Johnny Beck is getting high, Greg is like, wait, I feel like if a cop were to come upon us, like... Right. we're suspicious, just, like, parked here randomly. Yes. So he goes off the beaten path, like, into this, like... In the truck? In mm-hmm. the truck. So, like... Over a curb into this muddy area, about a hundred feet away from a hundred feet or a hundred yards away from the cul-de-sac, and they get stuck. Oh, like the tires get stuck. Oh. Yes. So they end up leaving the truck there after they get fucked yeah, up. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they leave the truck because the truck is stuck. So they're like, "Fuck, we gotta just like walk," I guess. And as they're walking back towards the cul-de-sac, I think it's Greg that sees. Out of the corner of his eye, like something. He's like, what is that? over? It's dark. It's pitch dark. This is like, what, two in the morning or something? And they realize that there's something like in the cul-de-sac. And he's like, I think Johnny or somebody's like, maybe it's a rolled up rug or something. They don't know. Yeah. Oh, they see something on the floor. They see something like on the ground ground. of the cul-de-sac because it's dark and they have no idea. And they're just like, we got to get out of here. We're we're on drugs. Like, we're kind of fucked up. We got to get out of here. Here's the thing. Like, I think Greg thought maybe it was a mannequin. Yeah. And Johnny Beck was like, uh, no, buddy, that is a body. We need to get the fuck out of here. And it was. It was the body of a woman named Jaquetta Thomas. Yeah. And Greg was like, we should call the cops. Remember, Greg is this nice middle class guy. Johnny Beck is black. Right. He's like 
dude, if we call the cops, we're going to be like, you know, he's worried about racial profiling, I'm sure, you Absolutely. know, and just wants to get away from anything that could you said potentially this was 1991? be. 1991? Yes. Yes. This is around the Rodney King out in Los Angeles. Yeah. I mean, it's the LA riots. Like, it was kind of everywhere. So that even makes more sense why he would be like, hey, let's get the fuck out of here. Totally. Yes. Yeah. So you just don't want to mess with anything. Right. Like, it's like, get out of here. So they end up getting a ride from this random woman named Barbara. Barbara. And they went to another house. Wait, who was just driving by? Yes. And they and there, she was like, you okay. want a party? And then party. Oh, so she's like a party. Okay. Yeah. So it's like the high continues. Get it, Barbara. So they party for a bit more. And then eventually Barbara drops him off at a gas station. I think he, Greg calls his wife and to pick him up. And she's clearly not happy. And she's it's like, like, why are you calling me? o'clock in the morning. Yeah, oh, he's got to work. And so she's not happy, obviously. Did uh, did the wife know that he partied? Pretty sure she knew. How could you not? Could That's you true. Not? How would you not? Yeah. yeah. How could you, you not? come at five in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. So she picks him up, they drop the daughter off at school, and they were going to go get his truck. But then they notice that there's a bunch of cops there, and they're like, okay, well, we got to get you to work. We'll just drop you off. I'll drop you off, and we'll get your car later. Because he, at this point, tells his wife, like, look, I think we saw something last night. It was kind of, like, trippy, but we got out of there. And then he gets to work, and he tells his boss, you know, and I got to get my truck. Yeah, it's like early in the morning. He has not slept. It's early in the morning and he's telling his boss, like, my truck is stuck in this cul-de-sac, but there's cops over there. It's all sectioned off. I can't get to it. I think I may have seen something suspicious last night. And the the boss is like, let's go. Yeah. Let's check it out. So they go, I think, with his wife, too, with Greg's wife. Yes, right? the, three, so of the them three of them go, go back out. to the crime, what is now, like, deemed to be a crime scene because it is all, like, sectioned off by the cops. Greg approaches them and says, you know, this is my truck. I need to get to it. Greg thinks, you know, I'm just... I just want to get my truck. I have nothing to do with any of this. Right. So he approaches the cops and he's like, I just need to get my truck. The detective, Johnny Howard, tells Greg to meet him down at the station in a couple hours. And so, the, so the cops didn't like no. freak out or arrest him on the spot or anything? No. They were like, like, you have to leave your truck. You're not getting it. But come down to the station so we can question you. Yeah. Okay. Like we, we just want to get like a little more information. Oh, so even then he wasn't like suspicious that something no, was no, wrong? No, 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 no. All right. So he goes down... Around 9 a.m. Okay. So it's about like two hours after he's Going, like. Yeah. Yeah. So he's down there and Detective Howard is interrogating him. It's not normal questioning. It's not like, hey, what did you see? We're going to let you go. It's a little more intense than that. And Greg just thought he was like going in and trying to So this is just like a voluntary like And because Greg didn't do anything wrong, he didn't think I need to have protection. I just, I trust the system and I want to help provide whatever information I can to these guys, the detectives that are doing their jobs and then I just want to move on with my life. And the thing that I really love about Greg is he told us like, at that time, I had no knowledge of the legal system other than like Magnum PI or like those old like 80s shows shows. yeah yeah. so he's like i presumed that this would be resolved in an hour because that's how the first 15 minutes like because i'm the red herring it wasn't me (laughs) (laughs) yeah exactly yeah i mean it makes sense if you if you're not like i mean i don't know if i were like a part like partying and like high and whatever i'd be a little like oh maybe i shouldn't go in and talk just yet right but other than that like if you didn't do it, like, sure, yeah, I'll answer your questions. Why not? Exactly. So, the temperature in this interrogation room <laughs> starts to change. Detective Howard tells Greg that they have a witness who's claiming that they saw something different. Greg's getting concerned. Detective Howard was like, you were with somebody named Johnny Beck. Was he black or white? I don't uh, even know how that comes into it. He's creating the narrative that he wants yes. Greg to say. 
And Greg so, is so confused at this point. He's like, what the heck's going on? Why didn't he want like to stop it and like, get a lawyer? He said, you know what? He says, I had a pending DWI arrest and I had a t- an attorney for that particular charge. And it crossed my mind to ask my wife, should I call this attorney? And we did. But this attorney was, I was told, was in a conference or something. So that was the end of my pursuit to try to find an attorney. And again, he knew that he was innocent. It just did not occur to him that, that someone he might think help. he wasn't. Yeah, he hasn't lived a life where he could potentially be guilty. You he know, has no he's a middle class white guy. That yes, I mean, and I don't do want to dismiss wrong. him in any way. But I mean, he should think that he's going to get out of whatever this is because he's right. He didn't innocent. grow up with those like those societal like things that are like ingrained in your head that like Mm -hmm. minorities often have to deal with. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. So when, when Greg is asked by the detective was Johnny back black or white and Greg says he was black, it was like he could see a shift in the detective's eyes where it's like, okay, cool. We have our angle. It's almost like Greg was watching him kind of go, I see the narrative that you're about to create. Yeah. And so it's like, they're trying to, yeah, it's like, so the beginnings of what you can see of where this is kind of going. He even said, I feel like all I had to do was cooperate and they would see that I was innocent. Mm. And yes, I, I feel like that makes sense because if you, if you didn't do it and you know, you didn't do it, you're just answering the questions. Absolutely. Do I have to be guarded or do I have to be careful? Like, I didn't do anything. I have nothing to hide. They asked him to take a polygraph. He said yes, but then they ended up not doing it. So that was weird. But then he gave him the keys to his truck and said, like, go ahead. You can check out my truck. And they went and they they looked at it. And Greg was like, you know, you're not going to find anything. But, like, please have at it. He's fucking cooperating. Yeah, they checked his house. Um, Why would they yeah. check his house? Because they oh, wanted for like a murder weapon. his clothes and everything. They wanted to yeah. see if they could find blood. Oh, right. Blood. If they're looking for like bloody stuff. Yeah. Oh, okay. That makes yeah. sense. Okay. So at the end of this very, this is all like in a day that Greg has been going through this. a rough row. day. Rough yeah. day. And at Plus this he's got to be like fucking hung over from the drugs. I'm sure he's not feeling great. He just wants like a cheeseburger and a nap. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So maybe some Pedialyte. <laughs> Definitely mm-hmm. some Pedialyte. <laughs> They were telling Greg that they had all this evidence and that there was a witness. Also, his truck was right near where they found the body, so he was the prime suspect just because of proximity. Raleigh police decided in all their infinite wisdom that Jaquetta Thomas was beaten and murdered in a sex-for-drugs deal gone really fucking bad. This is a story that the news outlets picked up on, despite it being factually untrue and a little victim-blaming. How fucked up? So, the crime scene. It's bad. And it was described to us at one point by Chris Muma, who ultimately ended up representing Greg Taylor, as an incredibly bloody crime scene. It looked like... She said a scene of passion, like a crime of passion. She's like, this is not a, you know, a scuffle over drugs or something. She's like, this is like, the person wanted to make sure this person was dead. Yeah, because they tend to be like way more... Like, violent and, like, over the top? Yes. Because she was just laying in a pool of blood. Yes. It was horrific. I mean, it's... Horrible. Terrible. Yeah. And then he was arrested for first-degree murder. So Greg goes to jail. And Greg was saying, like, his job was held and everything. Because they thought he was going to come back. They were like, okay, well, they're just... There was nobody who thought he was not innocent. Yeah. Except Except for the cops. So Greg's in jail... And while he's in jail, 
Greg hires a lawyer who is pretty famous nationally, so I presume he was even more famous down in North Carolina, a guy named Jim Blackburn. He was one of Jeffrey McDonald's defense lawyers. Folks might remember him from the book Fatal Vision, and if they do, they probably are thinking to themselves that maybe Greg shouldn't have hired the defense lawyer who had such a public defeat on record. They're not wrong. Greg does get released on bond for about a year and a half. And in 1993, Greg's informed that Blackburn, his lawyer, has been embezzling money and has surrendered his law license. And now Greg needs a new one. Yes. And this is like 16 months have gone by of making progress on his case. And now he's starting from scratch and gets a new guy. Yeah. And he's like, it's hanging over his head. Right. Like, the case is not going away. Right. And the new guy he gets, Mike Dodd, just kind of rolls onto the scene and says, this is the weakest case he's ever seen. It's, like, so clear that you are innocent. Because it is. And it is. But his stance is no defense is the best defense. And so that's how he takes it to trial. That seems like a mistake. Yep. Not being an attorney, but having seen lots of shows and movies with attorneys... I mean, you kind of want to put up a defense. Yes. But like the lawyer works for you. I would just be like, um, no, dude, put up a defense. Like tell them I didn't do it. Like not no, just like, bet- did he just, okay. I mean, I have to say like if I have an expert and I'm putting quotation marks uh, around the word expert who's coming in to talk to me about my case and he's saying the best offense is no defense, I'm going to be like, Okay. Yeah, but even, but he knows the law and right. I don't. But even that, like you know, should make you you know the spidey you know yeah. the hairs in the back of your head stand yes. neck head whatever all of the hairs go all up. the hairs everything's up just like you got <laughs> mild electrocution no but it would make you be like uh is this really the best way to handle like my defense to just go Meh, I'm not gonna say anything yeah. I don't know if I would be okay with that yeah April thirteenth nineteen ninety three. Greg's trial begins, and Dodd's strategy is this no defense is their best defense. So, like, that does that mean no cross-examining or anything? Nothing. No. That Not seems like a, a terrible fun. plan. Yes. <clears throat> Sorry, I just hit puberty there. I apologize. <laughs> well, no, I feel like the more aggressive the story is, the more the high-pitched higher we the all voice go. goes. Mm-hmm. We're always screaming one of us. Yeah, by like the end of High-pitched this. outrage. Yes. Yes. And another thing. (laughs) (laughs) So, during the trial, they talk about, and they being like the prosecution, talks about this test that was done on the blood. Not the blood that was around the Body. body. Okay. There was a spot that was found on Greg's truck. And there was a test done on that spot. It was not... Oh, by the SBI? Yes. Okay. And they did this test called phenolphthalein. So I spoke with Marilyn T. Miller, who is an associate professor of forensic science at Virginia Commonwealth University. And I've been speaking with her to sort of disseminate some of the science in our show. And for this episode, she helped us with like understanding luminol and phenolphthalein and all of the chemicals that we've been talking about. That's the one to spray for blood. The luminol is the spray for blood, and you spray it, and then you use a black light over it, and it, it's like blue, right, 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 glowy. Yeah, it's like disco. 
Yes. But for blood? Fluids. I don't, what am I saying? It's like <laughs> bodily fluids. <laughs> Luminol, as described by Marilyn, is something that can be used to identify bloodstain patterns. So like on a wall, you would have like a bunch of... Oh, right. Like spray it all down. Or any bodily functions or whatever. Like Oh, it's more than just blood? Yeah. You can go into like a hotel room. <gasps> oh, oh, God. Yeah. No, I have to go stay in a hotel soon. <laughs> What's weird I'm is a that little it, bit of a germaphobe. <laughs> it doesn't work in hotel rooms. It's so strange. Oh, weird. Okay, good. Yes. Yeah. So, luminol is something that can be used to identify bloodstain patterns. It's a preliminary test. That is a liquid that is sprayed, as we just discussed. Mm -hmm. So you spray it, and then you use a black light to identify like a bloodstain pattern or a bodily fluid pattern. It's totally one of the things that we've seen in like CSI or Dexter or whatever. Like everybody has seen this, except for those who haven't. I just want to be inclusive. But Marilyn told me that it's really challenging to use because it's hard to photograph because a you need darkness to use the black light and everything, and then also the stain apparently can disappear in about eight seconds. So oh, you have to be like ready to roll. Yeah, yeah, like not realistic. I don't think I would ever be able to do that because I don't think I'm coordinated enough to be like spray black light camera. camera. (laughs) You need like a pit crew, a luminol pit crew. Mm -hmm. Also, that's going to be my band name. That's a good indie band name. Yeah. Except for it's going to be like death metal. Yeah. I think. Okay. Anyway. So on Greg's truck, they used luminol initially to identify that there was a blood stain type pattern or the drop. The dot. Yeah. And it glowed. So then they used phenolphthalene in addition to the luminol, which is also a preliminary test. It can be used in conjunction with luminol. You can swab a small sample of blood. Like it it uses very little of like the sample. sample. Yeah, that was great English, but you guys know what I mean. (laughs) So you swab at it and then you can put it into a hydrogen peroxide water mixture. I don't know the details of how much you use. Oh, this is the one that like turns like a, a color, right? Yeah, it turns pink. Yeah. If it's potential blood. It's more festive than the luminol. Yeah. Or you can use both. So you, yeah. it's like super colorful and like it's like a rave. I support it. Like the yeah. kids do these days. Yeah. I know. I love that the 90s are back. Okay. So this test determines <laughs> that there was blood on the truck under the fender wall. And luminol was used to determine that there was blood near the body. So what she just said was under the fender wall. Where's the fender? Under, like the tire. Oh, the little rim. Sorry, my words slurred because yeah. rosé. <laughs> yes. Thank you, friend. <laughs> Wait, so. So the like, tire wall. The front tire, like oh, that, so, like, like that little li- part underneath. Right yes. above the tire. So like, you can't see it from the outside. Correct. Right. So there was like a tiny little spot of blood. Oh, when they looked at it. Or no, it was a tiny spot and they tested it. When they fully inspected the car, they found it. Right. And they also brought this adorable little bloodhound named Sadie to the crime scene. Oh, Sadie. Such a sweet dog. She sniffed around the car, both doors of the truck, allegedly indicating there was blood on, in, or around the truck. Well, this is a little aside because Priya and I both love... British murder mysteries. This seems like a ridiculous subplot in Midsummer Murders. <laughs> it's like, well, Sadie found the blood. Except for, you know what? It's not a ridiculous subplot. Ridiculous subplot, Barbara. Well, yeah, the where wo- the fuck did that girl go? Right. The woman who drove them to, like, the party That's where they're, like, hanging out, and then they, she drove Greg to the gas station. <laughs> to the gas station. They couldn't find her. 
The prosecution allegedly she was never find her. brought to the trial. And defense is not giving a defense. Defense is not doing anything. Right. He's asleep. Prosecution does not have Barbara. Seems like a big plot hole. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Things, yeah. things In have the gone story awry. of Greg's life, a human being's life. Wait, but wouldn't okay. a judge be like, uh, where's this? Like, who's the witness? Jailhouse informant. So going back, Greg <laughs> is in jail. And he, I think he's like out in the yard or something, but he's getting to know a fellow inmate. A fellow inmate named Ernest Andrews. I mean, I'm not clear on how well Greg knew Ernest Andrews or if he even said anything to Ernest Andrews. Yeah, because a lot of times those like things are not because it's somebody trying to curry favor with like a warden or. Right. Reduce their own time. Yeah. Yeah. So Ernest Andrews approaches the prosecution or the prosecution. Well, not the defense because he was asleep. Yeah. Right. (laughs) I mean, he was busy. Real busy I mean, doing like yoga. Other things. He maybe had a garden he had to tend <laughs> I mean, to. Yeah, yoga. Manicure. Work, working on that Manicure. novel. Mm-hmm. So Ernest decides he wants to see if he can get out a little bit early. So he goes to the prosecution and says, Greg told me he did it. And Ernest testified at the trial that Greg confessed. Confessed to him. Right. But that was a lie. Yeah. Right. And people just believe him, they take it for face value. And, like, Perry Mason had nothing to say about it. He just, like, slept through it. Like, nope. But I he, mean, like, gardening. Uh, I'm shaking my head right now. No, but, but my point, like, I'm cracking jokes, but, like, my point is that's somebody that's in jail for committing a crime. Mm-hmm. Allegedly. Mm-hmm. Allegedly. You would want to do some homework or check out the story or, like, try and poke holes in the story, not just be like, oh, all right. He didn't phone it in because he didn't bother to dial the numbers. No. He left that phone he on the He didn't even hunt. have a phone. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So There's Ernest so much Andrews. that's infuriating already about this. I know. And we're just getting started. <laughs> so he said that. They, like, yeah. So that was the prosecution presenting their case. So they that have, was like the, end they of the, have case. the blood spot on the truck. They have Alleged blood the spot. dog that smelled things. Cute Sadie who could Cute be full Sadie of Sadie who smelled things that may or may not have been accurate. And then they have the jailhouse informant. And then Dodd That doesn't presents seem like much nothing. evidence. Mike Dodd presents nothing. Thursday, April 15th, 1993, mm. the state rests. The defense it- does not present a case. <laughs> Friday, April 16th, the next day, 1993, Dodd motions for dismissal due to the state's lack of evidence. He's not wrong. Yeah. He's not wrong. Right. However, he probably should have presented something. Yeah, do something. Yes. Participate in the trial that you're getting paid for. Absolutely. On Friday, April 16th, Dodd motions for dismissal due to the state's lack of evidence. Law enforcement officials have read the transcripts of the trial and are shocked. This is later. But they are shocked that there wasn't more evidence. Like, presented for... Oh, like when people reviewed the case after the fact? Yeah. Greg's wife... Becky, over the weekend, calls Dodd, wanting to talk about the case. He's tired of talking about the case and just wants to forget about it for the weekend. Focus on his gardening. I mean... Yeah. Like, he wasn't focusing on it during the week. I hope his garden sucked. Yeah. Monday, April 19th, 1993, Greg tells Kristen, his daughter, I'll see you when you get home. Oh, God, no. Before she goes to school. Well, I know where this is going. Tom Ford, the prosecutor, and Mike Dodd 
make their closing arguments. I'm actually wearing a Tom Ford's clothes. Oh, so now. the, the oh. Um, hey, different Tom Ford. No. Tom Ford and Mike Dodd make their closing arguments. Ford, the prosecutor, illustrates all of the evidence mounted against Greg. And both there both is, things. Yeah, but primarily focusing on the blood. Okay. Right. And using that as like the key evidence as to why it's Greg. Okay. Here's a dumb question: Does Sadie take the stand? Yeah, she does. She did. She says woof. <laughs> yeah, and they were like, "Well, I'm mean, just picturing her like sitting there and like they're adjusting the mic because she's smaller." <laughs> In Tom Ford's closing argument, he mentions blood evidence okay. 17 times. As in the spot of blood that they found in the wheel So well. they basically hung the whole case on that. That was the blood. biggest exactly. piece of evidence. Okay. Exactly. Dodd, however... Took a nap? Yeah. Well, no, the transcriptionist did, or the court reporter did, because there is no transcript no of his evidence. argument. He didn't He didn't have a closing argument either? He had an argument. We just don't know what was said. We don't know what it was. That We're, seems right? weird. Seems it's weird. very odd. Yeah, that is not pertinent to... The long term. Oh, that's case. not like a seat, like like no. a twist that comes out later. Like spoiler alert. That is not a spoiler alert. Just a. Bad we just st- have no idea what was said. Yeah, but like you know, if you're gonna hang your hat on a conspiracy theory, which you could, mm. I feel like that's very strange. Yeah. The jury was out for like two seconds. Guilty. Ugh. Sentenced to life in prison. Jesus. Yeah. Ugh. Mm-hmm. I mean, this poor guy, like, he just, like, it's like he never even stood a chance. No. Yeah. Like, why wouldn't they put him on the stand and just be like, hey, I didn't do it. Why not do any anything. kind of, de- yeah. anything? April 19th, 19. 1993, the first night Greg is in what's called safekeeping. <coughs> what is yeah. safekeeping? Like, he's, he's not in general population yet. Yeah. It's like pre-jail? Pre- yeah, it's pre-prison? like, I guess so. It's like- this is after he's been convicted? Yes. yes. Okay. It sounds to me like it is a situation where they're concerned that you're going to have a hard time acclimating. So we just want to get you from A to C by putting you in B. So first night he's in safekeeping. He wakes up and is brought into the general population. So Mm -hmm. he's with everybody. He says everyone's looking at him. They know who he is. They know what he's in for. Which is what Jester said. Of course. Of course. Because he's not a, a murderer. Right. right. <laughs> but there's a plan. Like him his, him and his lawyer plan to appeal. The one who's asleep? Yes. Now he wants to do something? Yeah, he, he, he woke appeal. up. He woke up. Yep. yep. Uh, Rip Van Prosecutor. No. <laughs> Damn it. But defense lawyer. Defe- that doesn't have the same ring. Mm, Rip no. Van Prosecutor sounds better. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway. <laughs> but they're Blame optimistic joke. at this point. Because okay. they're thinking like, all right, let's just do the dance. Let's We're in here. Fine. Let's do it. And then we're going to appeal and we're, I'm going to get out of here. Yep. And he says so, it's going to be like 12 months. <clears throat> before this appeal will actually go through. Yep. Yeah. But, you know, hunkering down for 12 months and then hopefully getting out. I mean, one right? year's better than life. Yes. Right. Because they at this point, it's still like... Greg and everybody else, besides the system itself, is so confident that he. There's right, nothing it's like surreal. It's like, what the hell am I doing here? Right. Yeah. Like this, this is, is a like, mistake. This is a really bad nightmare. Like, when am I waking up? Yeah. But Ugh. then he gets transferred. June seventh of nineteen ninety three gets transferred to the Nash Correctional Institution, a medium security prison. But it's not so bad. So he's thinking like, all right, I can hang in here. It's not so bad. But meanwhile, when we're talking to him, we're kind of thinking like, how is how is someone who's in such a horrible condition? 
thinking so positively and so optimistically. And it's like that can only come from a place of innocence. You know, when you are so certain that you are innocent, that you can hang on to hope for this whole process of like waiting for an appeal. Somebody has to see that like this is wrong and a mistake. And I will tell you, every time we've spoken to him, every email that we've exchanged with him, he is the most optimistic person on the face of this earth. And like the shit that he has gone through would have... Yeah, like destroyed, destroyed people. Yeah. most people. Yes. And Johnny Beck, by the way. Yeah, he was in jail, in Wake County Jail, for two years. Yeah. He's out of jail at this point yeah, in time. Yeah, they, they How released did he get Johnny out? Beck in 1993. So August 18th, 1993. Oh, because he had a defense attorney that spoke? <laughs> no, because he... There was no evidence there against no Johnny. There was no evidence against him. There wasn't any evidence against... There was, though, because remember oh, Sadie the doggy? Mm-hmm. This the, is the, fucked up. Yep. This is fucked up. There have been a few times where Greg has been approached to, to for him to quote unquote roll on Johnny Beck to basically give him up, like say like he was in on it too, or no, just to say that Johnny Beck did it. Oh, they wanted Greg Taylor to confess that Johnny Beck did the murder. They were sweetening the deal for him for Greg, like giving him these insane offers to get out if he just confessed that Johnny Beck did it, and Greg never did. Because he was like, he didn't do it, and I didn't do it either. And I'm not going to roll on him. So, 1998, Greg appeals and tries tries to get the charges against him dropped due to ineffective counsel. Fair enough for for Sleepy McGee that, like, did fucking nothing. Yep. Wake County Superior Court denies the motion. September 11th, 2000. (sighs) Whatever. The U.S. Supreme Court. I'm so annoyed right now. Right? (laughs) September 11th, 2000, U.S. Supreme Court denies his habeas corpus. But this is interesting. Once you go to appeals, all the things that are being considered are legal arguments. Innocence is not an appealable issue. So you're guilty until proven innocent, basically. But you can't prove you're innocent in an appeal. Because you've been convicted of being guilty. So when you oh, go back, right. you have to prove that there was like a mistake, like that you were like given defense, a poor like defense or... Something was withheld, withheld evidence or some BS like that. So April 10th, 2003, North Carolina Supreme Court refuses to hear Greg's request for DNA testing. So at this point in time, it's been 3,644 days. So like nine years. It's been a number of attempted appeals. It has been his parents and Everybody just trying to do whatever they can, spending whatever money they can. There's nothing they wouldn't do for right, him. Right, it didn't just ruin his life, it ruined all their lives. Yes. Everybody is impacted, and all they want to do is prove his like, innocence. Imagine if that's your dad. Exactly. But also his own father is watching <laughs> his son right. languish in prison. And Ugh, it's all terrible. Here's poor Greg Taylor, who has exhausted his appeals. And meanwhile, he's missing all of these milestones. And he's just going to, like, rot in jail and, like, spend the rest of his life there until yep. he dies. He talks about the fact that he's well aware that life is going on outside. Yeah. When he went into prison, his daughter was nine. He missed his daughter's 10th birthday, her 16th, 18th, 21st. God. He missed teaching her how to drive. He missed all of her graduations. And he missed her wedding and the father-daughter dance at her wedding. Mm. So... Life is going on without him as he's sitting in prison. Like your life, you've, you're frozen at the moment that this happened, but the world still moves around you. You're just not a part of it. Right. Ugh. 
And his daughter, Kristen, had said to him that she refused to have anybody walk her down the aisle because her own dad couldn't walk her down. Yep. Ugh. But also what was really interesting, he refused to meet her boyfriend, who then became her husband. He refused to meet him because, well, he, the, the fiancé, the boyfriend, the husband, you know, whatever he was at any part in time. In During his, his incarceration. Yeah. He was like, I don't understand why he doesn't want to meet with me. Well, I would think it'd be like, I don't want you to see me behind bars. Absolutely. That is 100% why Greg didn't I want can, I can understand that. Yeah. He was like Absolutely. embarrassed. Because you can't, you can't help but have like thoughts or an opinion or if you see somebody behind bars. Yeah. Like whether they're Mother Teresa, you're like, why are you behind those bars? Right. Like what, you know what I mean? Like even if you think they're totally innocent or whatever, like just the visual of that's like, well, I mean, that's, yeah, that's the, the fucked up part of this story is that like this man's life was destroyed and like everyone around him's life was destroyed mm-hmm. for something that he didn't do. Ugh. So Greg has been clinging on to hope this entire time through year after year, after year, after year of like one of these days, I'm going to get out of hope. I, yeah. I, I don't think I would be able to, it leaves me speechless. I mean, I had a meltdown when like, you know, the flowers I ordered were an hour late or didn't show up. Like this is like someone's life. Right. It's unimaginable. It really is. And even talking to him, it's just like, he's so calm when he speaks about it. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I just think that says a lot about his character. So Ed Taylor comes to see Greg Taylor in prison. I'm sure he visited him a number of times, but this day is different. And it is 2003. Greg has been in prison for about 10 years at this point. Ugh. Almost 10 years. Okay. And Ed Taylor essentially sits his son down, a father sitting his son down to say, we're out of resources. We're out of options. There is nothing more we can do for you. I mean, as a father, that's like heartbreaking. Heartbreaking, yeah. That is fucked up. It is even more fucked up. How? Not just with Greg's case, but like the rest of it. But all of that fucked up stuff is what we're going to get into the rest of the season. And speaking of the season, tune in to next week's episode where we'll continue following Greg Taylor's case where his father, still clinging to hope, attempts a Hail Mary to get Greg out of prison. And finally, thank you so much for listening. At the end of each of these episodes, we want to highlight the work being done for justice reform, science, and the prevention of wrongful convictions and provide information on where, if you're as fucking pissed off at hearing about these stories as we are in telling them, you can throw some money or volunteer or whatever you can do. For some of our research in this episode, we spoke with Marilyn T. Miller, an associate professor of forensic science at the Virginia Commonwealth University. If you have money to spare, send it to me. If you're not going to send it to me, I'd really send love it. Send it to me. <laughs> I, like, I like money. <laughs> okay. For real, though, if you have any money to spare, she would love for you to help support the Virginia Commonwealth University, which is where she works, and specifically the College of Humanities and Science. You can find them at www.support.vcu, that's V as in Victor, C as in Charlie, U as an umbrella, dot edu as an education. You don't have to explain that one. (laughs) (laughs) And as always, we'd love for you to join us on our social media. 
where we'll be posting links to our research, photos, and videos on our Facebook page. You can find us on all platforms, Facebook, Insta, and Twitter at Podcast. That's E-F-F-E-D-U-P-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. If you need to reach us via email, it's the same deal. Podcast at gmail.com. And finally, we don't like to shill for ourselves, but this podcast isn't about us. Fucked up or effed up is about helping other people. But in order to do that, we need to get the word out. So if you have a moment to spare, please rate us on whatever app you use to listen to us. It will help us become more visible and help us elevate the voices of the victims and survivors who have been impacted. If you have more than a moment and want to help us get the word out, please tell people, share links. The more people know about these injustices, the more changes that can be made. Let's create a fucking social injustice league and change the fucked up world. Effed up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Done. That was fucked up. Effed up is executive produced by myself, Priya Hubbard, and Jessica Borges. Research and story is by me, Priya Hubbard. Executive inquisitor is Keith Burke. Episode recaps written by Brandy Abbott, social media hall monitors, Brandy Abbott and Paloma Diaz. Cover art is by Allie Kelly. You can find her work at Allie Kelly Illustrations on Instagram. That's A-L-L-I-E-K-E-L-L-E-Y Illustrations on Instagram. Our music is composed by Allegra Borges, executive in charge of support, Jeff Berg. Technical consultant, Randy Maringer of Maringer and Unger. On-air distractions provided by Nima and Newman, a.k.a. Newman. Additional investigations are provided by cat detectives, Monsieur Hercule Poirot and Captain Hastings. Special thanks to Chris Muma, Greg Taylor, Jill Garlick, Kara and Angel, the best neighbors in the entire world. Derek Kicker, Ian Golding for helping Derek. You're the best. Uh, the guys over at Guitar Center in West LA. Seriously, this is who we're doing a special thanks to because without you guys, nobody would be hearing us right now. Seriously. Thanks, guys. <laughs>